Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. You're listening to sounds from this past weekend's Gion Festival in Kyoto. That's one of the big three traditional festivals in Japan. Around 150,000 people reportedly attended this year's festival, which involves a parade with elaborate floats that winds its way through the city streets. For lucky, or should I say wealthy, 84 attendees, premium seats were offered at a hefty price of 400,000 yen. That's around $2,870. The idea of premium seats is just one way that Kyoto and other cities across the country are trying to cover costs. The Awa Odori Festival in Tokushima, for example, is selling them for 200,000 yen. And premium seats at the Aomori Nebuta Festival are going for as much as 1 million yen. So, will appealing to wealthy visitors and tourists help these summer traditions stay alive? This week, Alex KT Martin joins me to talk about Matsuri and how they're connected to Japan's aging population. Alex, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you, Sean. So, for our discussion, I want to refer to traditional Japanese festivals as Matsuri, the Japanese word for it. Japan has other festivals like music festivals and film festivals, but the word Matsuri, I think, denotes a specific brand of celebration. That's correct. Matsuri is an important part of the、uh, country's cultural heritage. Now, I mentioned the Gion Matsuri at the top of the show. Have you ever been to that one? Unfortunately not. What Matsuri have you been to? I've been to many. There's my local Matsuri at Suwa Shrine coming up this weekend, I think.、Um, and then there's the Nezu Shrine Festival, which is also another shrine in my neighborhood. In terms of the bigger ones, I've been to the、uh, Aomori Nebuta Festival, where they have these gigantic floats they're known for. And also in Tokyo, the Sanja Festival in Asakusa,、uh, which already happened, but that's always great. Cool. What's your favorite Matsuri? I think I just like my local festivals, to be honest.、Um, obviously, the, you know, the massive ones are, are fun to go to, you know, all these people coming together, you know,、mm. huge celebrations, festivities. But at the end of the day, you know, I like the small sort of uh, uh, local festivals at the local shrines. What do you like about them? I think for me, you know, there's a sense of nostalgia involved.、Um, mm. These old sort of、uh, food stalls and people wearing their happy coats and kimonos and you know, selling these、uh, little sweets that I've been eating since I was you know, a little boy.、Uh-huh. And it's like you know, going back in time, I guess, and sort of like regaining that sort of sense of wonder when, you, when you're going to these festivals as a child. Right. How about you? Well, my favorite is probably the Koenji Awa Odori in Tokyo. I have a lot of fond memories, not stretching back as far as yours. Um, but a lot of good memories hanging out with friends under the train tracks,、uh, like through the night. We would be kind of like, you know, drinking together. And then a random dance troupe would just show up and perform. And、uh, it was a really great atmosphere. But I have to say, I haven't actually been to any Matsuri since the pandemic. That seems to be a problem. And you address this in a story you're writing that's going to come out this weekend. Yeah. That's correct. So when the pandemic first hit, At least in 2020 and 2021, I think most Matsuri in the country、uh, were canceled. These include the firework festivals as well.、Uh-huh. And I think last year, you know, gradually、uh, we've begun to see more festivals come back up again,、um, but not to the level of pre pandemic days. So this year, this summer, actually, is probably going to be the first time when、uh, there's no restrictions at all. Have any of these festivals kind of 
disappeared with the pandemic? Oh, yes. Um, well, I don't think there's strong stats to back this up at this point just yet. Okay. It'll probably come out, you know, in, in the years to come, but I'm sure there are many that died out. I know there's one, Abon Odori Festival in Tanashi in Western Tokyo. Yeah, Western Tokyo. Yeah. So they're not going to be having their annual Abon Odori Festival this year or, you know, ever after from here on. And I think uh, there are many other uh, festivals, especially in rural areas, small festivals that have died out during the pandemic. Do we know how many Matsuri are held in Japan? By some estimates, there are around 300,000 festivals huh. in Japan, which is interesting because I think I've read some other statistics saying that that's the same number of neighborhood associations in Japan. Right, okay. And these are the groups that typically host matsuris um, in cities and in, in villages. Okay. What is the purpose of a Japanese matsuri? Like, and what are we likely to see if we go to one? Typically, matsuris are held for the local shrines or temples. Um, it's a way to sort of uh, uh, offer thanks and pay tribute to uh, the local gods. That said, uh, matsuri are quite seasonal. The matsuri held during the spring is usually to sort of pray for harvest. Uh, during the fall is to uh, thank the gods for the harvest. During the summer, traditionally, there were a lot of plagues um, sort of uh, going around the cities uh-huh. uh, back you know, centuries ago. So they would host these matsuris to sort of uh, ward off the evil spirits to keep away the, uh, the bad diseases and all that. Right, right. And then there's the obon season. That's when uh, the souls of the deceased sort of return from the netherworld to sort of visit their living families. And during that time, uh, a lot of uh, communities, they host what they call the bon odori, sort of a dancing sort of uh, festival. Okay, and just for those listening overseas, obon is kind of a week of holidays that happens typically in the middle of August. Right, and you know, during these festivals, typically you'll see people carrying uh, what they call uh, mikoshi, which are basically portable shrines, small shrines that are hoisted on the the shoulders of you know dozens of people carrying them around the town. Mm-hmm. You'll see dashi, which are these floats. Some are quite big, actually. People can actually climb onto them sometimes. Then you'll see these uh, they call the yatai, the food food stalls, not just food, but uh, some sort of sell uh, masks for children. Um, maybe there's like a shooting gallery for kids. Okay, like a carnival. A carnival, yeah, basically. Yeah. So you know the three components of matsuri generally are the mikoshi, portable shrine, the dashi, the floats, and number three, yatai, the the stalls. Okay, you said that one of the factors in the matsuri trying to stay alive is cost. How do Matsuri raise money and then what is that money spent on? When it comes to these small neighborhood Matsuri, I think a lot of them rely on donations from uh, you know, the townsfolk. Um, when it comes to the bigger ones like Amori's um, Nebuta or the Gion Festival or the Sanja, the Matsuri itself is a huge sort of uh, tourism draw. So, for example, the uh, Nebuta, I think they typically gather around a million people every year. Obviously, this wasn't the case during the pandemic, which goes back to the story of, you know, right. how Matsuris were having a really hard time during these past three years. So it really depends, I think. Do they ever get commercial sponsorship? Yes. So if you go to the Yaomori Nebuta Festival, you'll see these little sort of signs uh, on the bottom of the uh, floats with, you know, corporate logos or whatnot. Right. So they seek sponsors, and that's one way to sort of advertise, I guess. And then when is the money spent on? So Matsuri can be quite expensive. These mikoshi, for example, the portable shrines, even the ones for the kids, they call it the kodomo mikoshi. They can cost, you know, tens of thousands of yen. Uh, when it comes to the bigger ones, or the, the regular mikoshi, it can cost anywhere from like a million yen to I think the most expensive ones are like 100 million yen. Hmm. Um, and then you have all these, uh, the happy coats, the drums, the taiko uh, for the uh, the music. And, you know, it's a lot of stuff that actually I spend money on. Right. Matsuri. Yeah. Another factor that you mentioned in your story is that these kinds of cultural traditions, so matsuri and odori, are often important to the elderly, but maybe not as popular with young people. 
I think it's not unpopular with the younger people. Uh, I think people of all generations, they love Matsuri in Japan. You know, it's just, it's just a fun festival, right? So even the kids, kids love it. My, my son loves it. My daughter loves it. The only thing is like when you, you got, you need someone to organize these festivals. Okay. I think this is an issue, not just in Japan, but you know, in any developing country, people just come and go now in the cities, right? So for example, uh, if I'm correct, you live in Nerima, but I'm pretty sure you've probably never sort of helped out with a local town association or anything, right? Right. No, I've never. Yeah. Same with yeah. me. I live in Sendagi. <laughs> I go to local festivals, but I don't think I've actually helped out in organizing one. So it's two different things. The organizers are typically people who have been living there for generations, which automatically means most of the time they're quite old. Mm -hmm. The thing is, uh, they're looking for new people to come in and organize these matsuri, but they're having a really hard time finding them. Um, I also spoke to uh, Professor Haga of Sofia University, he's a sociologist, and he's been sort of studying uh, matsuri and its uh, sort of uh, sociological significance. And he mentioned that uh, there was a big turning point in the 1970s and 80s. And that's uh, when a drastic change sort of happened in Japanese society, which had an impact on uh, how these matsuri were organized and presented. What was the change? So essentially, um, until then, a typical Japanese family were often extended families. So you would have your grandparents living with your parents. So it was like a three-generation, or sometimes it was like a four-generational family thing. But during this period uh, in the 1970s and 80s, we saw a proliferation of um, nuclear families and even single-person households. That's the norm now. But this is when it first began sort of uh, emerging as a big sort of uh, demographic group. And that obviously has uh, an impact on traditional uh, community festivities and things like that because uh, people are no longer sort of uh, attached to their uh, local areas and hometowns. People you know, move into the big cities with their nuclear families. Perhaps they would go back to their hometown once a year during the uh, New Year's holidays, but uh, they're not as involved in local sort of uh, community tasks anymore. So that was, that was a big transition in the 1970s and 80s, which sort of continues to this day. What do you think is the solution to this uh, shrinking pool of organizers for Matsuri? Because we don't want to see Matsuri disappear, obviously. Sure. Um, I think there are several solutions. Obviously, villages and communities might want to be a bit more creative uh, when sort of drawing um, potential organizing uh, personnel. A lot of these Chonaikai neighborhood associations are quite rigid um, and uh, perhaps not um, as welcoming to newcomers as you might expect. So maybe that's one way to sort of like, you know, maybe they should have their arms open a little bit sort of wider and so like more accepting of people. On the other hand, there are organizations like Omatsuri Japan uh, that I interviewed for this story. They basically sort of help produce these local Matsuris on behalf of the organizers. They know how to sort of PR uh, Matsuri or get like, you know, corporate sponsors like uh, like beer companies to have them sort of like market their beers at these festivals and stuff like that. Right. Um, I also talked to a guy called uh, Miyata-san who uh, has an organization called Ashtaski. He goes around helping carry the, these mikoshi. These mikoshis can be quite heavy, actually. I've done it before. You've yeah, done it before? Yeah, it's quite heavy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite a labor. <laughs> So at the same time, it's sort of like symbolic, right? You know, you can't have a matsuri without a mikoshi, sort of like that's, that kind of thing. So you, I think he's carried about 500 uh, mikoshi over the course of like, you know, the last decade or so, just going around to the little sort of festivals in the countryside and helping them out, actually, like physically helping them out by carrying the mikoshi around and stuff like that. So there are people who are trying to sort of like, you know, help these local festivities, either physically or through sort of PR uh, tactics. Then I think the organizers themselves need to sort of like, you know, become a little bit more creative when they're trying to appeal the, uh, the benefits of not just Matsuri, but perhaps joining their neighborhood association. And an, another sort of uh, interesting phenomenon is uh, the Ko 
Shinji Awaodori that uh, you went to, you mentioned, mm. um, that originated in Tokushima Prefecture. And it still goes on in Tokushima, obviously, but it's sort of uh, branched out into different uh, Awaodori sub-branches all across Japan. I think there's several dozen now. The one in Koenji is one of the bigger ones, obviously. I think it attracts like, I don't know, a million or two million people each year. Right. It's, it's massive. I've been to that before. It's great. So... Professor Haga told me that these dance-centric festivals are actually, uh, they're good in the sense that it's relatively easy to replicate as long as you have the uh, the music and the necessary clothing or attire, then you can just practice on your own and actually go out and present, you know, the dance to the public or you can actually join the dance. So I think it's a very sort of organic way of sort of spreading the, uh, the Masuri fever. Right. It's like kind of an in real life TikTok. Yeah. It's very, very uh, photogenic. So you go uh, you know, online during the season and you'll see a lot of you know, TikTok or uh, Instagram posts of people just dancing and doing their Matsuri thing, right? So right. It's, it's very colorful. Yeah, I really do want to actually go to the Tokushima one one day, I think, just from being at the Koenji one and enjoying oh, yeah. it so much. Yeah, um, and the thing is, you know, the smaller Matsuri that I mentioned before, the ones held by the neighborhood associations or villages or, you know, hamlets, these are the ones that, you know, are having a really hard time sort of, you know, going on. I talked to uh, Mr. Kenichi Kubota. He is the owner of a, a used car dealership in Tatekawa, which is a district in um, Sumida Ward, I believe. And he's been basically trying to revive his uh, local uh, summer festival for the past two decades or so. And uh, one way he succeeded was that he began teaching drums, taiko, to uh, little children um, and have them actually perform at the Summer Bong Festival. That gives, you know, kids something to sort of look forward to. Plus, um, hitting the drums to a certain rhythm isn't as difficult compared to other instruments, for mm-hmm. example. So he's been doing this, you know, for a long time. And just before the pandemic, I think he had about 40 kids um, who were practicing drums who would actually present at the festival. And what he said was like, you know, if you have 40 children coming to a festival, their parents are going to come too, right? Then their grandparents come too. So you can expect, you know, at least, you know, several hundred people just coming just to <laughs> see the kids perform. Yeah. And that, you know, creates this sort of nice vibe, you know. That's already a Matsuri in itself. So so he was, you know, that was one way for him to sort of tackle the situation, I think. How's he thinking um, this year's Matsuri in his neighborhood of Tatikawa is going to go? So he typically starts these uh, rehearsal sessions in July this month. And I asked him the other day after I wrote the article and how's it going, and he sent me some photographs of the uh, the most recent rehearsal sessions, and I saw at least 15 kids there. So maybe not as many as uh, the pre-pandemic days, but I think, you know, he's off to a pretty good start. Alex, you mentioned that Matsuri are important to Japan's older residents and that they need to get young people kind of involved in the organization of these uh, cultural traditions. On a related note, you recently wrote another story that concerned the aging population, and that was called uh, Inside Japan's Oldest Village. Right. So back in 2014, then-government advisor uh, Hiroya Masuda, he was the former governor of Iwate Prefecture, he released what people call the, uh, the Masuda Report. And he warned that nearly half of Japan's municipalities were facing uh, possible extinction by 2040 uh, due to the rapid aging and uh, shrinking of the population. And at the top of the list of the Masada report was this uh, village called Namoku in Guma Prefecture. So I just went there for a night to check it out. What's Namoku like? So Namoku is a village situated uh, pretty deep in the mountains of Guma Prefecture, um, population around 1,500 uh, but in terms of the ratio of those 65 and over, it's a whopping 67.4%, which is over double the uh, national average, I think. Right. 
Um, in terms of how it looks like, what's a typical sort of countryside village? You know, you got this main alley sort of winding up into the mountains and you have uh, stores and homes uh, lining the streets. However, I noticed a lot of abandoned homes uh, in the area and not many people walking around. I mean, <laughs> I guess people just drive now, so you don't see, you know, that many residents walking around in the first place. But uh, it was, it's a typical Japanese countryside town in terms of the atmosphere. How did Nanmoku wind up becoming the oldest village in Japan? Actually, quite a difficult question. So back in its heyday, when three different villages sort of uh, combined to form Nanmoku, uh, I think this was back in the 1950s, their population was around 10,000. And the local economy was really thriving thanks to uh, robust uh, cognac uh, production, um, as well as silkworm industry. Okay, so cognac is kind of that gelatinous gray corm of a plant, like the bulb of a plant um, that's also known as devil's tongue, um, and it's used in winter oden, yeah? That's correct. It's very healthy, too. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so these, you know, they had several sort of local industries that, that were really thriving and sort of bringing in a lot of money, but then uh, things started peaking out in the 1970s when uh, konyaka production moved to the flatlands, a lot of imports came in, and the soapworm production wasn't as uh, necessary anymore as before. Uh, the forestry industry also took a hit. The entire nation's forestry industry took a hit during that period because there were a lot of sort of cheaper imp imports coming in. Mm. Same thing happened in Namoku. So a lot of its younger residents started moving out of the town. What happened was like the older uh, people uh, remained in the, in the village, which mm. brought up the, uh, the average age significantly. And... By 2015, I think the population dropped below 2,000. Um, but what's interesting is one of the big draws of the village now is that they have three uh, old folks' homes um, of, you know, varying degrees of care. Right. And it's a small village, but, you know, they have three of these, which is quite rare, I think, um, in terms of, you know, when you compare it to other sort of small villages and towns in Japan. Right. Is anything being done to save the village or are people just kind of going to basically let it age out? So it, you have to understand this is like a, a big national phenomenon. It's a big demographic decline. For example, last year there were uh, twice as many people who died than were born. Hmm. Having said that, these elderly care facilities is actually one of the plans of uh, the current mayor when he came in back in 2014, the same year the Masada report came out. His idea was that at, at that point there was only one elderly care facility and the waiting list was about 2.5 years, I think. So what would happen are, you know, the elderly residents would have to sort of move out of town to go to a different facility, uh, which would be a population drain, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So what he thought was like, okay, we'll make two more new ones, uh, make it zero waiting list time. At the same time, it produces new work for, uh, you know, the younger residents living in the village or people who want to move into the, the, uh, the village. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, he was very actively trying to sort of seek out uh, newcomers to sort of move into the village. Um, there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, open homes, abandoned homes that could be rented out for quite a cheap deal. Mm -hmm. um, and Namoku is actually very beautiful. You know, it's sort of like it sits by the valley of the Namoku River. It's not too far from Tokyo. So the access is actually not that bad. It's not like in the middle of nowhere or anything like that. So, and especially during the pandemic era when, when a lot of people started doing remote work. So they were actively trying to recruit uh, younger people into their village. Well, one of the younger people that you spoke to for the story was a guy named Ryo Igarashi. 
right? At the young age of 43. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about him? Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in Japan, the whole definition of, you know, being young and old <laughs> is quite different. It's very skewed to a, a, an interesting demographic sort of thing. But anyway, yeah. So Ryo Igarashi, he came from Yokohama and he uh, basically lived all over Japan. He was working at different farms. And at the end, he decided to move to Namoku and uh, sort of create his own organic farming business. He rented a house for 30,000 yen a year, which is, you know, almost basically free, I would say, with a small sort of a plot of uh, farmland. He began from there and sort of gradually expanded uh, his, his farming thing, and now uh, he's self-sustainable. He did tell me that initially uh, the villagers were somewhat skeptical about what he was trying to do um, because they had this memory of, you know, their thriving cognac industry uh, falling to the ground. And I think that sort of sense of loss, you know, that economic loss from those golden years sort of persisted. So they were a little bit skeptical, but uh, he, you know, he showed up to these uh, village organizations and parties and whatnot and got himself known to the villagers. And then things, you know, began changing. They became very, very accepting of him and started helping out with, uh, you know, whatever he needed to do, uh, devices, uh, machinery and stuff like that. Now, it's interesting uh, what you said there in that, um, you know, maybe like things weren't that easy for him and people were skeptical about his organic farming venture. I would think that a village that is looking for younger people might not be so picky. This kind of like reminds me of what you talked about in the earlier segment of the show about um, these neighborhood associations and how they're a bit rigid when it comes to new membership. Well, he didn't meet any resistance moving into Namoku. Um, actually, the current mayor, I think, sort of uh, helped him out a lot to sort of like figure out, you know, where to live and what to do at okay. the, in, in the onset. Um, it was more like, you know, when he was actually trying to sort of form his uh, farming business that uh, uh, he met not resistance, but some sort of, you know, skeptical glances, I guess, here and there. But, you know, you got to understand that, you know, a lot of these small communities um, in the countryside in Japan, they abide by uh, sort of, you know, there's a code of conduct, I think. And uh -huh. This is probably not just in Japan. Anywhere you go to, you know, if, if it's like a place where generations of people live there because everybody knows each other, right? Right. Um, there's no way to sort of uh, detach yourself from the community. You have to sort of like get yourself inside the community. So I think a lot of these villages are trying to be sort of uh, welcoming, um, trying to sort of accept a lot of people from different backgrounds. But at the same time, you know, you have old time residents um, living there for generations and generations. And you can't ask them to like, you know, be, OK, we're going to have another person come moving in right next to you. Just be nice, you know. I think it's it's like it's, it has to come from both ways. So people moving into these villages, they need to understand that you know it's a community-based uh, system. So you need to sort of adapt to uh, this new reality. It's not like living in Tokyo. At the same time, villagers, I think they're trying their best to sort of um, accommodate. But at the same time, you know they've been living in this on this land for like forever. So you know they know this place as you know better than anyone else. So I think it's it's a matter of sort of finding like a nice balance between these two sides. Well, it reminds me, um, when the BBC's Tokyo correspondent Rupert Wingfield Hayes left Japan, uh, he wrote a very long piece that we can link to in the show notes. It was titled, Japan Was the Future, But It's Stuck in the Past. Um, in it, he talked about one village that he did a story on that had a similar situation to Nanmoku. Uh, the village was filled with older people, and they desperately wanted younger people to move there. However, Wingfield Hayes kind of implied that they were desperate for young people as long as they were Japanese. And I kind of think this picks up on what you were just saying about, you know, kind of meeting a certain standard if you're going to kind of try to like move into these places. Um, my question to you is after, you know, seeing a lot of these villages yourself, shouldn't they be kind of trying to accommodate new people coming in? 
Yeah, I suppose you could say that. Um, it's kind of like what I was talking about before with the neighborhood association and the Matsuri. They will probably need to get creative to attract new people, um, especially young people who may want something different from the place they choose to live. Um, at the same time, these, a lot of these villages are uh, obviously aging out, and the people there who are trying to solve these problems are themselves often elderly. For example, the mayor of Namuku is, you know, is very sprightly, is energetic, but is 68 years old. <laughs> and um, you can't help it, but uh, perhaps these solutions might come from uh, a younger population um, with you know, new ideas to accommodate the younger generation. Yeah, who knows what I mean, they want. Right, yeah. right. So, yeah, um, I think the towns and the villages that have a chance of surviving uh, in the long run are you know, those that are coming up with uh, sort of new interesting ideas. Alex, in that last segment, you mentioned a statistic that twice as many people died in Japan last year as were born. That's correct. Um, in 2025, two years from now, all 6.5 million of Japan's baby boom generation will be 75 or older. Mm. At the same time, the birth rate has been uh, sagging. The number of newborns have been uh, going down each year. And then uh, the number of marriages or people who want to get married, um, these are also going down. Uh, there are various reasons behind it. One, perhaps uh, there's a huge population of uh, so-called non-regular workers, people, uh, temp workers, contract workers, people with less uh, financial stability. Um, and, you know, financial stability directly has uh, uh, impacts on the notion of getting married and having kids. So it's, it's basically a, a long sort of demographic decline that's impacting a lot of things. At the same time, we're, you're seeing a, lot, a soaring number of single-person households, people just living on their own. So, and one of the side effects of this is a, a phenomenon called uh, kodokushi, or lonely death. Right. You spoke about this uh, phenomenon and specifically an issue tied to it in a piece you wrote recently titled, In Japan, Plenty of Inheritances, But No One to Claim Them. Set this up for us. You went to an apartment in eastern Tokyo, and you were there with a woman named Miwa Yuzawa. That's correct. So I visited a uh, area called uh, Higashi Koiwa, and this is an Edogawa ward, I believe. Um, I tagged along a, a company called Bixia. They're a special cleaning company uh, dedicated to cleaning and sorting out the properties of the deceased. In Japanese, you call them uh, ihin seirishi. There's a name for these people, actually. Okay. It's hard to translate this in English. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to even do that. <laughs> okay. But anyways, so uh, the owner was a 76-year-old uh, woman um, who died alone. Uh, no one discovered her until several months afterwards. Um, and then her estranged daughter asked uh, Bixia, this company, to uh, go through her possessions and dispose of anything that's not cash or expensive kimono parts um, or important documents. So they were sifting through her property and picking these things out and then getting ready to sort of uh, either take whatever was remaining to uh, recycle centers or disposal sites. So how common a problem is this? Oh, it's it's everywhere. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's like a hard statistics on how many kodokushi happened each year. Uh, I think Tokyo releases some numbers, but I don't think there's like a national figure. But by all indications, I think uh, the numbers are soaring. According to the 2020 census, uh, there were 21.1 million single-person households in Japan, and that's a 14.8% increase from 2015. And a third of those are single individuals uh, who are 65 and older. And the problem is, you know, if a person dies and if they have a will left behind, that's fine. But uh, in many cases, they leave without any directions. And that can obviously cause complications. Um, and in other cases, they just simply don't have any heirs. 
And when that happens, um, uh, oftentimes the uh, local administrators need to intervene. And what they do is they post a little sort of paper on the outside of the, the door to the apartment saying that, you know, contact here um, if, if you know this person. Ideally, uh, a relative or someone might drop by to check up on uh, you know, the person and contact the city. Um, but oftentimes that's not the case. And at the, at the end of the day, they need to sort of clear out the place. They need to hire someone like Bixia to come in, uh, sort through the stuff and uh, dispose of you know, whatever is unnecessary. And then they would take whatever's left to like a storage place. So in terms of stats, in fiscal 2021, the government received uh, 64.7 billion yen from the assets of uh, deceased individuals who didn't have any heirs. Wow. That's 7.8% up from the previous year and almost double from a decade ago. Just to be clear, though, uh, people can make a claim for this stuff, right? Distant relatives and stuff? Yes, yes. The thing is, um, sometimes uh, rightful heirs would sort of uh, waive their rights, right? Oh. This happens a lot of times with uh, homes and properties. For example, you know, uh, an old person was living in, in an aging home in the outskirts of Tokyo and he or she dies. Uh, but the heirs, they don't want to take over responsibility of the home, so they would waive their rights to the property. And it would just be up in the air pretty much, right? Because nobody wants it, but nobody's taking it down. So this is one of the root causes of the uh, akia, so-called abandoned homes issue in Japan that's plaguing the <laughs> entire country. Uh, I shouldn't say plaguing, but it's, a, it's sort of like a phenomenon where you see more and more abandoned homes that's just been you know, sitting there. Right, right. And in addition to this, uh, there are dormant bank accounts, uh, which are bank accounts that has, haven't been touched in uh, 10 years or more. What happens to the bank accounts of people who've passed away with no next of kin? So each year, um, bank accounts worth around 120 billion yen become dormant. Uh, that's just over $860 million. Huh. Um, but a new law in Japan now allows these funds to be used by the government to uh, support nonprofit organizations. And on June 21st, uh, there was a revision to that uh, legislation that was approved by the Diet, which paves way for the, uh, these funds to be invested in startups with a, a strong public interest mission. Oh, interesting. You know, what's interesting to me, though, during all these three stories about the Matsuri, the oldest village, and the property being left behind, is that for years and years, I've been hearing about the graying population and the falling birth rates, right, growing up in Japan. It's been an issue, you know, a constant issue. You'd hear about this constantly in the news reports. And now it's like me, I'm seeing and reporting on the results or the forced results of the consequences of this demographic decline. Right. In a way, it's kind of like how we've heard the alarm sounded for years on climate change. And now here we are in a heat wave and parts of Japan and South Korea are being flooded by torrential rainstorms. True. And I mean, I don't want to sound grim or negative, but there are other things uh, looming in the horizon. For example, the, uh, the pension system, right? Is it going to be sustainable? A lot of uh, pundits say that, uh, no, it's not. At some point, you know, there's going to be a pension system crisis looming in the horizon. Um, you know, is the social security system, is that, is that going to be sustainable, right? So everything is linked to this demographic decline. You're going to have, uh, the population's going to fall. We're going to have more old people, uh, less young workers. And what we're seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg of the challenges facing Japan moving forward. Wow. Okay. So Alex Martin, thanks very much for coming on Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. My thanks again to Alex KT Martin for coming on this week's show. We'll put links to the stories mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Elsewhere in the news, COVID-19 cases are continuing to rise and taking a toll on the elderly in particular. Experts are blaming it on high heat, declining immunity, and the start of the summer holidays. Japan Times writer Tomoko Otake reports Japan's ninth wave is hitting the west of the country particularly hard, and that the number of hospital admissions is also rising. 
And last week saw the release of legendary animator Hayao Miyazaki's reportedly final film, Kimitachi wa Do Ikiruka, which we now know will have the English title, The Boy and the Heron. Film critic Matt Schley reviewed the film for us, be sure to check out his thoughts on it. And as of recording, the film has, in its first four days, earned 2.14 billion yen. That's just over $15.3 million, and the highest opening for a Miyazaki film. Not bad for a movie that didn't have any promotion. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Christophe Luang. The closing theme is by Oscar Boyd, and the theme music was written by Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. Thanks for listening, and Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.